The podcast In-Depth is brought to you by the team at Inform, Virginia's leading lifestyle magazine. Published by Lee Enterprises and reaching more than 50,000 households statewide, Inform spotlights the best of Virginia culture, travel, food, personalities, and more. And the In-Depth podcast takes you on a deeper dive. Here are your hosts, magazine editor Clay Barber and associate editor Lewis Brisman. Welcome, everybody, to In-Depth. I'm joined, as always, by my good friend and colleague, Clay Barber. Clay, how are you? Doing good. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. You very much are an artistic person, not just as a writer, but working with illustrators on the comic arts and other things. You've had a good appreciation of art. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about public art uh, with a guest. I'm curious, from your time in Virginia, do you have a piece of public art or something related to public art that you hold particularly dear? That's a good question. Um, You know, it's funny because by and large, I've never really paid much attention to public art. I mean, you see it, you acknowledge it, you move on with your life. And I think I'll say, I think a lot of us are guilty of that. It's like we really don't appreciate what might be around us. But the one that resonated for me was was the one in Richmond um, during the Black Lives Matter um, rallies uh, when they re- um, contextualize the Robert E. Lee statue. Um, that I found that very powerful, and the images of that that continued to show up, um, you know, in on the news and in, in social media, um, where you had the the um, graffiti um, sort of encircling Robert E. Lee, and um, you, and originally, you, of course, you were still in Tidewater. Yes, yes, as that this was, was uh, as this was going I, I f- on initially. I found that very, very powerful, and even you know, I, I would have even argued that I would have liked to have seen that stay because it it was the rare piece of public art that had two lives and and spoke across generations. Yeah, it's in, that's a good way of putting it that it really had two lives. This is a. a so you call it the recontextualized piece of art that the New York Times Style Magazine in late 2020 dubbed the most influential work of protest art since World War II. And if you think about it, it was, you know, it wasn't like one artist came in and did the graffiti. You're talking hundreds of different people and all of their emotions and all of that pent up, um, you know, anger and 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 pain with each one of those spray. Yeah. Strokes. You it was know? truly. I mean, you yeah. talk about public art in a very different way. Yeah, it yeah. was not. It was public participation. It was public artistry. Yeah, you know, exactly. Beyond participation, it was really artistry. I would argue it was kind of infused with a with a new power. Yeah, you know, it yeah. was amazing. I loved it. I think it's sort of great that our guest today might help us unpack some elements about the beauty and, in some cases, the mystery of public art. Because our guest today is Nina Goodale who, in simple terms, connects her community through art. That community right now is actually Virginia Beach, but we'll also talk with her about public art elsewhere and in general. Goodale's title is formally Public Art and Placemaking Coordinator, and she fosters a broad definition of what art can do. This can even include initiatives ranging from economic development to violence reduction and community healing. She's an artist in her own right, and she moved to Virginia Beach in 2016 from Hartford, Connecticut, where her roles included serving as a city arts commissioner. Goodale was featured in the spring 2022 edition of Inform Magazine. 
Nina Goodell, welcome to In-Depth. Thank you for having me. Well, there's no reason to reinvent the wheel here. I'd just like to know a little of your biography. How did you get to Virginia Beach? Well, um, I came to Virginia Beach just over five years ago, uh, sight unseen. Um, the first time I was ever in Virginia Beach was going through the bridge tunnel as a child. Um, so that was my only reference. But I was able to um, come here with a unique opportunity of, um, of developing and implementing the first uh, comprehensive public art plan based on a uh, study, an in-depth study, uh, the public art or the arts 2030 plan that the city had done a few years prior. So, And so your background, though, mm -hmm. you ha it's a multifaceted background. Yeah. You had, I mean, if when we looked at your resume, there was a million jobs that you did. How does one build a resume to get a job like you have now? Oh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, I... I I think it's, it's, it's one of those things that those of us in the industry that have found ourselves uh, public art curators or placemaking outside of the more traditional or um, assumptive routes of being an urban planner or uh, just museum studies, many of us have uh, kind of a, an eclectic background that we bring with us. So for me, my, my eclectic background always has, has had arts threaded through it. Um, my background is in fine arts uh, with a concentration in education and illustration is uh, my educational background. But I have had roles as a senior interior designer and buyer for, for, major, um, for major retailers. I was an arts educator, kindergarten through eighth grade, as well as a museum educator. I have um, also been a practicing artist myself, both in the gallery and the public space and community space, um, as well as, um, as well as, consulting on state and uh, city levels throughout the state of Connecticut and the city of Hartford, where uh, for several years I consulted um, in their uh, public art um, sector. You noted, and again, with an official title like yours, you know, public art and placemaking coordinator, people might overlook that you are a practicing artist mm -hmm. and an artist by training. So tell us about your own art background and your work. Sure. So, um, it's a practice that I'd like to get back into with a new voice, but um, I was very much a traditional um, artist. So I started off um, with oils and moved to watercolor um, and illustration uh, just because I became a mother and it was a little expensive and I didn't have the studio space with <laughs> the ventilation. But I was also doing um, murals, and especially in the early 2000s, late 90s through the 2000s, um, doing things like trompe l'oeil work and large murals um, for both public and private clients uh, was something that I was doing regularly on top of the interior design work I was doing. Um, and I've also done uh, work as a set and production designer for a ballet company, a, uh, the first iterations of the trash and fashion shows, which are common now, but it was a newer concept then. But my own personal work... Um, I really, I, I work with uh, India ink and different types of papers, and they're very either small and intimate, and small, they call them my isms, and they're um, kind of these small illustrations that are kind of like little poignant thoughts, or large-scale figurative um, pieces on, with India ink and vellum. So, what is large, when you talk about large scale, like how large? Like six feet by nine feet on rolls of vellum, so architectural firms would give me their old rolls of vellum, so... Yeah. Wow, that's quite a uh, quite a variation, you know, from almost miniatures to you know approaching wall size. It helps me 
it helps me create. So, you know, I, I like to, to work, um, I like to work in that extreme. So when I'm working really small, I love the gestural, larger, figurative um, brush strokes uh, and, and using that in the ink. And it's, it's unforgiving, and I like that. So when I make a mark on the paper using those, those mediums, it's permanent. So big you, challenges. <laughs> you, you referred just a, a minute ago to like a new voice, mm-hmm. sort of getting back into it. It's like what, what do you, as, your, as an artist in your own right, what do you sort of think about when you, your next or current phase of being an artist? Um, the maturity. I think there's just a different a different voice that you have as you live life and, and those life lessons. And I think that there's a different maturity. Um, and, and it kind of harkens back to even the, the type of work I do in the public space. But, you know, as, as we grow, we heal and, and we rediscover ourselves. So I think that voice is resting somewhere in there. Well, one of the, it's interesting because both as an artist and as a curator of public art, Mm-hmm. It gives you a, a chance to look at the uh, the medium from multiple um, directions. Can you just tell us a little bit about the difference between private art, curation, mm-hmm. public art, curation, that sort of thing, Your the job that you have now? Sure. Um, so I, I've been on both ends, and I've been, you know, I've, my background has been working in, you know, the nation's oldest museum, the Wildworth Athenaeum. So private art collections, museum collections, um, really, it's, they're, they are meant to evoke, uh, bring beauty, um, thought, but access as an artist into those private gallery museum spaces can be really limited um, for, for the general artist. Um, and, and, and getting pathways into that uh, can be difficult. But to curate those, um, you're really curating for, for audiences to, to connect with them in one way or another or to tell stories and narratives. Um, and sometimes those stories and narratives are purely about the artist's vision and narrative that you are, you're sharing with, with, the, with the public. However, public art, um, you are curating for the public. You are curating spaces that evoke conversation and beauty or connection. However, I get to work with artists that maybe see themselves as artists, but they're untrained and they don't feel like they've had access and they're community artists who, um, and giving them a voice. Or I get to work with muralists and sculptors and, um, and community-based artists. But I also get to work with world-class artists um, that are really innovating and pushing the boundaries of public art um, on, on a bigger scale. So public art allows access to everyone and it really, truly creates a space for everyone, every day. Is it hard, though, I'm thinking for you speaking as an artist, mm-hmm. not just as a public art coordinator, sure. it seems like you've probably done commissioned pieces mm-hmm. for clients in the past, and you might be working with your patron in that mm-hmm. sense. But I think a lot of people think of artists as having a singular vision. But with public art, it feels like we're talking about a community vision, and that means visions plural, and there must be an incredible amount of maybe both pressure, compromise, and a very different mindset that an artist would have to bring. That's, to a, that's an interesting concept because one of the you know a stereotypical view of an artist is mm-hmm. that they are uncompromising in their vision, right. and as a as a person dealing with public art, it is interesting. I suppose you can't really be uncompromising. You have to be open to you know, everybody's opinions. 
How do you sort of nav? I mean, how from an artist perspective and maybe as a public art coordinator perspective, working with other artists, how do you navigate? They're that? two different. I, I will phrase this in two different ways, and, and and they both kind of come to the same meaning. There's two different business models. So there are muralists who are absolute amazing muralists, and they're they're more commercial muralists. So they will work with private private um, companies or or um, private residents, business owners, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, even in the retail sector. And, yes, they're working with the client, but they're, they are engaging this particular commercial artist based on their portfolio and based on, on like, I want your art to be there because it's you. Um, and sometimes that doesn't translate as well when artists who, who really have a business model that is commercial art um, into the public space. For me, I've been on both. And now that I'm on the art administrator side, there's about a year's worth of my planning that even before that RFP is issued or RFQ or whatever that call to artist is, where I'm working with all of the community stakeholders, even the city is a stakeholder, and we are developing what it is, that what vision they want, how they want it to feel, how they want it to, and how interactive they want. And they're also on that review panel. So um, the review panel is always made up of, city staff, as well as community staff. And so public artists, really, they're, they're helping to bring to life the story of that community, the identity of that community, even if it's like, um, you know, we just did a gateway project underneath an overpass on Shore Drive, um, Oysters Bloom. And it was really interesting because, you know, the community shaped that. The community helped identify that as a key location. And that was a year and a half before that even started. And the artists that we brought in were from the Mid-Atlantic, from the Baltimore area, and they had a shared story of the oysters that are unique to the Bay. And they were able to connect in that way. And so, um, and it told a different facet of the Virginia Beach story in particular. And so that's, that's like the biggest difference is that then once they're commissioned, there's a lot of back and forth and, you know, and, and, and development of, of those artworks. It might surprise some people to know just how prolific the portfolio of Virginia Beach's public art is because, um, you know, there are, there have been people who have joked about, you know, uh, Virginia Beach is basically a strip mall come to life, that sort of thing, because it is more neighborhood than town. Mm-hmm. Um, but its portfolio of public art is impressive. Yeah. Can and you tell me about, like, I mean, how fast has that come up? You know, over the past 10 years or so, how many pieces have you guys put out into the public? Oh, my gosh. Um, so the public art portfolio of Virginia Beach has really just exploded. I mean, I, I can't say it hasn't. I mean, it has really exploded in the last six years. As I said, I was brought on about five and a half years ago. Also, at the simultaneously, which was also informed by that study that was done with public input, um, a creative district was also um, created at the same time, uh, the Vibe Creative District. So, um, and that was done by design and, and fostered to be an arts and, and economic development um, project. And so, um, within the Vibe alone, because they're set up with some autonomy that for me being mm-hmm. city government, even though they're kind of under our umbrella, um, the they have their mission is to make sure that there is art three hundred and sixty degrees. If you stand anywhere, you will see art. Um, so there's hundreds of public art pieces throughout that creative district. Um, and 
that entire district is getting kind of transformed by some really amazing urban uh, planners and designers that are in in our city. Yeah. Uh, are so, you familiar, Lewis, are you familiar with the Vibe District? Uh, on, only pretty much in name and that it's been well thought of, yeah. but I yeah. have not yeah. really and, had a chance and to by immerse design, myself. It's, yeah. it's really, and, and conversely, I have the job of curating for the entire city. So any, any public art on city property. And so in the last five years, um, I've been able to um, really from scratch build, build kind of what the, what the buckets are on how I curate. So we have um, uh, of course, our murals. Of course, we have our um, boardwalk with all of our um, military and and service m- memorials that I oversee the maintenance of, and 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 those. Um, and then you know pieces that we've inherited over over the uh, years. How many pieces would you say you guys oh my have gosh. as a city so, now? And then all of what we have here in our portfolio. I know. I think we probably have. 30 or so or more and more coming and just the gallery itself. Yeah. And, and just the gallery yeah. plus community projects that you don't see in the gallery itself. So I have a community, um, I, I curate through community projects that are really, you know, with residencies, with the schools and the neighborhoods, I have an eco residency. So that's really unique, um, that I was able to test in Virginia beach because Virginia beach has such a rich, um, eco, um, mm-hmm. resource mm-hmm. And, um, and passion, and passion, passion for the So I was able to yeah. bring um, eco-responsive artists that typically only get to produce in private residencies um, in like Tahoe, in Tahoe or New yeah. Hampshire and bring them into the public space. Um, we have sculptural um, uh, gateway gateway projects that we do that are tied into our infrastructure. So You say yeah. actually you, you sort of came to Virginia Beach, if not exactly sight unseen, that you were maybe – rolling the dice, as it were, or mm-hmm. not particularly familiar. What were your first impressions? I presume that what drew you was the fact that Virginia Beach itself was making a commitment yes. to this. But still, you know, you're coming into an area, you know, from, from the Connecticut area, coming mm-hmm. down to an area that you really weren't that familiar with. What were your first impressions as you were looking at the canvas that's Virginia Beach? It is sprawling. It is a sprawling that New England does not have. Um, so there was that. And that idea of strip malls, I, I literally, and, and I'm not, it, it literally was dropping my lens to the, the major streets and seeing strip malls and then understanding those are neighborhoods and communities all throughout these, you know, little areas. And they're, they're identifiable. Um, and we also have this rich oceanfront and beach area and resort area that's like old Virginia Beach and the heart of Virginia Beach and the bay. Um, and then we have an amazing um, black community with 12 historic neighborhoods that I've worked intimately with on, on, on some remarkable projects that have a rich, deep history. And then we also have, um, we have a green area that is agricultural. And to go from one point to the next, from one end to the other, takes over 45 minutes alone. You know, um, so really being in it, um, just changed that perspective and made me really appreciate the community that I get to serve. And let me ask you, Nina, as before we de- uh, sure. dig into a couple of specific projects, you've hinted at some of the challenges or unique qualities of managing public art, but what are a few things that might surprise people 
about public art or the process of public art? Um, I think I think what might surprise people is how much the public is really involved. It's not the city funding this and doing it for, even though that is the case. But we, as a as as a public art administrator, I really make sure that the public is involved and they have a say and they have a voice in what is being created and produced in their communities. Even if it's the business district um, to help promote economic development and tourism, I want them involved um, because it's still reflective of them and how they want to be seen by, um, by people coming in. When I work with um, different neighborhoods, I want them to be involved because I want them to say, I see ourselves in this, and I want people to see who we are through this. So I think that's the biggest surprise. You've mentioned that there are, uh, in our interview that we did with you, you mentioned that there were two projects that were particularly um, important to you. Um, Would you mind just tell our listeners a little bit about those two projects? Yeah, so um, I alluded to it, the um, eco-responsive residency program. Incredibly proud of that. I think um, using art to talk about our environment, um, the beauty and the resources that we naturally have, as well as the challenges, and um, especially in Virginia Beach, we are second um, in the nation um, behind uh, New Orleans for sea level rise. So there's a lot there that we can talk about and discuss. And what's unique about that program uh, in particular, we've had two years of it. COVID really put a lot of things on hold, so I'm hoping that we can revitalize it again. But we've had two amazing eco-responsive artists, and they're they're charged as as part of this residency to respond to an area that we've designated for this residency. They also need to utilize um, materials or the community in the creation of that piece and be accessible and available on the educational level. So our first one was called the Terrapin Basin. And that was, and these are temporary. So a lot of, a lot of eco-responsive public art is ephemeral. It's meant to disintegrate back into nature or, you know, be temporary in that way. It has a, a absolute life cycle that mimics nature in some art. So but the first one, um, Benjamin Heller uh, created Terrapin Basin. It's an inverted turtle shell on the beach right next to the Brock Center, which is, um, and, and is, a, is an amazing environmental educational center for our Chesapeake Bay, um, our Chesapeake Bay, um, uh, why am I blanking, um, foundation um, is out of there. They do educational programs. They save the bay. This whole area was uh, saved by the community around it, and now it's a refuge in the Terrapin Turtles um, nest there and lay their eggs and it's a, it's a really big deal for the community and it was saved and and the Brock Center is um, is is fully like they are their their lead so they have a windmill and their own water and so he actually created um, this piece by hand carving and it took him about five weeks out in the sun with people coming and helping him and feeding him and he hooked up to the windmill so we used all wind power and then he hooked up to the bay water itself. So as he was carving each of the pieces that he formed into into the uh, inverted turtle shell, yeah. and it's a permanent piece that was uh, such a gift. So, yeah. yeah, but the community got to sit in it and talk to him, and he's he's kind of one of our family. 
So. And as you say, that's, you know, an aspect of sort of the, the uh, eco-artistic mm-hmm. element. Um, there are others. I'm thinking about, you know, Brushworks. Yes, a program yeah. that you've spoken about. Tell us a little bit about that. So we had our first pilot program for Brushworks. Brushworks is a uh, workforce development program in public art. I get goosebumps with this one. This one just like, yeah. These these are programs that you design and then you let it happen. And then when and it so turns what, into something more beautiful than you What was even. the goal of this one? So it's a workforce development um, uh, program where people experiencing or formerly experienced homelessness um, get to apply. They, they get to apply and work with a professional artist. And so NAD is actually an artist from Richmond. Um to develop this is Nat Harvin. Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, uh, to develop and create a mural. Um, and they have to learn how to work with the client. Here the client was the housing resource center. They had to come had to respond to a theme like any other public artist. So they go through the whole step. So it's art as a business and it's also art as expression for them. And so it was community as one was the theme provided by the Housing Resource Center as any other city client or any other public artist has to respond to. They had to come up with a design. They worked with NAD to do so. They had to lay out the design, come up with a budget, um, and then come out with a work plan on how to get it done in the time frame that they needed to, and then talk about the art that they created. So, um, And they were paid um, for their time. For, for all of that time, um, they had to interview um, and apply. So they had to go through the entire process. So... We are starting our second year with new partners, and we hope to let this program grow. You mentioned uh, Nat Harvin, in this case, one of the artists who mm-hmm. is, is Richmond-based. And I actually want to bring you into Richmond for a sure. moment. Um, Richmond is a great town for public mm-hmm. art. You've spent some time here, uh, you know, from you know murals, the whole shebang. But, you know, Monument Avenue uh, famously you know, is now devoid of the Confederate statues that adorned it uh, or polluted it Mm -hmm. for, you know, a century or more. And this is, you know, one of America's most historic avenues that's awaiting Mm -hmm. reimagining. It maybe, you know, might be considered one of the most prominent public art projects to be uh, in the United States. I think we're supposed to be in September, isn't that when they're supposed to have their... The plan announced? Yeah, I've, I've lost a little track of the timeline. Again, time obviously has meant something very different in the past couple of years. Oh it's, um, you know, uh, you know, Clay alluded in when he and I were chatting beforehand to, uh, you know, what became of the Robert E. Lee statue artistically mm-hmm. and how it was transformed into an amazing piece of protest oh art. Gosh, yeah. yeah, I, I mean, wish I had a print on my wall. Yeah, now. well, I, and, and, and I, I, <laughs> I do. But I, I do actually I, have that. I guess yeah. my general question to you is, what are your observations about the potential and the peril for something like a reimagining of Monument Avenue? So, and this is something that my Mid-Atlantic colleagues from D.C., from the team in D.C. who did the first Black Lives Matter down the avenue, to my colleagues in, in, um, who, who were, who were at, in Baltimore at the time for the first statue that came down uh, to this, and I say this when I, I talk about it. You have to frame things as time, place, and space to really wrap your head and have a open conversation when it comes to hot-button topics like memorials. 
Um, time. What was the time that these were made? Place. Where is the place and why? Were they placed there? Right? The space. What was the space? Space cannot, it, it might be physical space, but what was the social space at that time, the political space? And also, I will add to that, who funded it? Because who funded it tells you exactly the intent behind those pieces. And I think when you, without getting into details about every single one or what have you, generally speaking, and I think I can speak from a very academic, by framing it those ways, those memorials fit into that same narrative. Times, place, and space, and who funded them. And again, I would also refer back to now. We're again, time, place, and space. And I think that that's a great place to start as you reimagine those, those places. So you have the Wiley Kincaid, you have the amazing um, uh, piece of his, and I'm, why am I having The one with the, on the horseback? On the horseback. Oh, rumors of war. Rumors of war. And that's reimagining a narrative that captures every single one of those elements. And, and it gives it a new voice, and it gives it a new, a, new, a new place for people to look back generations in the future to look back and go, oh, I, 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 I can feel that and see that. And it responds to, to exactly this topic. But I think that it's important that we, as, as, as public art curators, navigate touchy and impactful places from that open space of dialogue that can help guide things that can otherwise be controversial. And that's just my humble opinion, but... Um, well, you know, it's uh, you talk about time, place, and space. You know, the the ghosts of the lost cause, mm-hmm. you know, were specters over that mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. medians and that entire you know roadway. And you know, you think about it's like in a way you have a blank canvas, and you also have a canvas with a lot of baggage. As you're thinking about that, how yeah. much mm-hmm. do you think about trying to? Do you acknowledge or not acknowledge do you what at some was point, there in a different time, place, and space? Do you at some point have to make peace with the fact that you're just not going to make everybody happy? Um, no matter what you do, speaking specifically of the, the Richmond situation, yeah. um, no decision they make will make yeah. everybody happy. So you sort of have to decide what's the most important thing, what is the, you know. And that's, that's where you can fine-tune those by, by having that, those guiding principles as you, as you curate. And, and no, I, I've... In, in my position, I have resigned that no one will ever be 100% happy, and I'm okay with that. But I'm also open to talk about it and to listen yeah. and to give space. You know, great art doesn't come from an agreement among everybody. Um, so I just hope when, when they do decide what they're going to do, with that they have some sort of strong point of view right, and, and right. opinion. Yeah. Just A vision. Go, uh, yeah. yeah, you know, because if they really got into, if they get into like, well, we're going to, because you know what happens, we've seen it in our, in our profession, when you make it so that it doesn't offend everybody, it bores everybody. Yeah. You know, but it, also, I do have to say, there's value when something is touchy, when something is intensely opinion-driven um, or politically driven or whatever to give it time, mm-hmm. to give some space, to give time, because perspectives change. Mm-hmm. Some folks who were feeling one way early on 
might not feel a certain way later. Some folks who were indifferent might suddenly go like, wait a second, I think I want to be involved in that. Other folks who were having it as a driving factor for whatever purpose that they had that had nothing to do with the community at large might go, oh, wait a second, I'm glad we all slowed down. Um, that is a valuable part of that process, and it's not pushing it off. That's actually honoring the process as it should be. And that's just something that I adamantly stand by. That's great. Well, here's a question for you. Um, we've talked about Richmond. What other cities in the country would you say do, uh, you know, handle public art particularly well? Um, and accepting yeah. Virginia Beach, we've accepted they do a fantastic <laughs> job there. We're but. working on it. We're, we're still, we're still, we're still in our beginning stages. So, um, let me see. Philly, I think Philly Mural Arts. They started this what late '90s when mural right. art really yeah, yeah. ahead of the curve, and they have raised the bar many times over. So we look to Philly as to how they organize community around that, how they bring in. Um, amazing muralists, how they, um, I mean, they've got a system down like nobody's business. And, um, and they really have, have like an impactful program that uh, just stands on its own in such a beautiful way. They so got that, that Stallone statue. <laughs> <laughs> really, and a cheesesteak um, to die for. Exactly. Do, yeah. so. We, we so. lost a writer not long ago to Philadelphia. Um, and he raves he left and was raving as he was going out the door about um, the food culture there. So mm-hmm. now we know they have an incredible art culture and an incredible yeah. food culture. I don't think people give Philadelphia enough love. I think a lot of people remain influenced by Eagles fans booing Santa. Santa. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, but Philadelphia is uh, is really a city worth visiting. Are there are some other cities maybe that might surprise? Like, have you been to a smaller city where it's like, oh man, for its scale? It was Let me it? see. So, um, I, I was going to just put a shout out to Miami Dade just because mm-hmm. they they host Art Basil and they've really developed uh, an impressive public art yeah. program on every level. Um, you know, uh, so so they're always great. Um, they're always nice to see kind of what, what they're, how they're utilizing their, yeah. their, uh, and leveraging their ocean front. And, um, let's see, Denver, Denver has a really great scene. Okay. Um, but they're, they're a bigger city. Um, well, those are good options. Again, these yeah. are places where people often I think was, about them for certain things, yeah. but maybe not initially. Not initially the public, public art. art yeah. I do have to say Santa Fe is great. Yeah. Like they're really great. I was out there and, you know, if you haven't gotten on the Meow Wolf, Immersive art, you, you got to go out there and see that because that has birthed an entire new movement um, around the country. So they, they were the innovators in that. So, um, so yeah. That, well, before, really final great. question I want to ask, what yeah. about Hartford? Oh, Hartford. So Hartford were scrappy. So I, I would love to say that, um, that we, I wish we had an actual shaped, informed, and funded public art program. But the artists in Hartford, I mean, those are my people. They are tenacious and create art and support each other and make some really crossing over from, you know, the visual arts to music to to theater and dance. There's just some impressive folks that that are there. Let me ask you this as maybe a final question. Mm -hmm. Um, And you talk about sort of being scrappy and funding. And, uh, you know, I think here in Richmond – there was some big controversy several years ago when the uh, arts, the public arts budget mm-hmm. was cut dramatically as part of a uh, budget cycle. 
and you know there had been a one percent fund you know part of those yeah. municipal initiatives to dedicate money to public art um so let me just ask your overall take on the climate for public art in the country are you generally optimistic or are you generally worried it's interesting but i am optimistic i am very optimistic two reasons even with or without the one percent for the arts, even with or without, you know, I, I see an emergence of municipalities and communities understanding the importance of public art and conscious placemaking as a way to literally, like, just as an economic driver and 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 create just create opportunities or revitalize downtown areas. It's a it's a accessible tool, um, even things like uh, tactical urbanism to do, especially coming out of, of um, COVID and, and us all being locked down. I mean, our need to be communal has been emphasized over these two years. Our need to share space and, and the public space is exactly that. I think that was the biggest conversation amongst our peers was we're like the necessary unnecessary, but we're the front line of getting people back into spaces comfortably. We're the front line of creating welcoming, warm, and safe environments after everyone felt so isolated. But also we're the front line in economic revitalization of communities that were hit so hard, the restaurants, the small businesses. It's those public art, tactical urbanist, placemaking incentives that got us out everywhere. It was utilized in New York City, was utilized in Norfolk. We're utilizing it in Virginia Beach. Here, those are those are those are really effective, affordable tools that are hyper local. Never mind the big stuff. But I have hope, and that I think has sent a ripple around the country to communities who I get phone calls like, "How did you do that? Can you let us know how we can do that?" Because we realize like. You know, we're in, you know, Loudoun County, and we'd like to implement something like that. And suddenly our planners are, are like, oh, that works. So I have hope. Tremendous hope. Well, that's a heck of a way to, to wrap up a great interview. <laughs> Nina Goodell, thank you for joining us on In Depth. Thank Thanks, thank, Nina. Thank you for having me.